Would you do me a big favor? Would you give yourselves a round of applause this morning? Give yourselves a round of applause. Go ahead. If you're uh, participating online, that may be weird if you're the only one in the room clapping to yourself, but I'm congratulating you. You're congratulating everyone else in the room for this reason. You made it. You made it to the end of our series. Yeah, it was only seven parts, but uh, you have made it to the end of our series, and I think we have saved one of the best parts of the series for last. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time, if there's some pieces that you've missed, uh, let me share with you a couple of things that may be helpful. The one is that you can find all of the messages from this series on our website at trinityalliancechurch.com, or you can uh, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you enjoy podcasts. You can go ahead and subscribe to that and listen to them as you drive to work, as you're doing some dishes and catch up on the things that you may have missed over the series. But we have another way that you can catch up. We're going to give you a recap today. We have talked about the benefits of a Jesus-first mindset, of the benefits that produce real change, the benefits that allow us to know God personally, the benefits that give us spiritual stamina and offer real joy in our lives in moments that are really, really difficult. We've talked about the logic of a Jesus-first mindset. Jesus is supreme over all things. He is the creator God, the one who sustains all of creation, and He is Lord over all. And He can restore us to a holy relationship with God. We've talked about the effects of a Jesus-first mindset, that Jesus is the only one who can change people both inside and out, both their outward behaviors, but also their inward desires. We talked about the commitments of a Jesus-first mindset, refusing to indulge in sinful appetites, treating others with grace, doing everything as a representative of Christ. And speaking of doing everything as a representative of Christ, representing Jesus in your family. We talked about that, how that arena where we spend most of our time, the people we spend most of our time with, well, those may look different depending on the role that you have in your family, but they're all connected by a deep, deep respect for each other. We've talked about representing Jesus at work, that because you've got the best boss ever, as an employee, do your work with excellence. And if you're an employee or you have some people that you give oversight to, treat your employees with dignity, the way you would love your neighbor as yourself, love your employee as yourself. And today, we wrap it up by talking about the rest of our time. How do we have a Jesus-first mindset in the world? And how do we have a Jesus-first mindset in our world? You know, it's interesting that if we were to think about the world, we often think about, as Christians, if you're a Christian, we're often told uh, that the world is different, that the world is difficult, the world is troubling, and that it's often hostile, it's often resistant to the gospel. But I have some encouraging news about those statistics, especially here in America. Barna and Glue, two research companies, joined together in the past year to see how people view the church. And this is one of the statistics that, they, that may surprise you. Check this out. 74% of U.S. adults 
believe the church offers hope to people. Is that surprising to you? That's surprising to me. When I heard that stat, I went, you did your math wrong. Because that's not been my experience, but that's what people say. So that's encouraging news. Nearly three quarters of adults in America, church and unchurched, see the church as offering hope. But while many Americans believe the church offers hope, there is a gap in the way that the church expresses tangible expressions of hope, expresses that hope in tangible ways. Only 53% of U.S. adults believe the church makes a real difference, and 44% of people view the church as being known for the things they are against. So let me ask you, don't have to answer this question, but in your own mind, just answer this question. Is our church known for what we're for or what we're against? It's a great question. And I love this idea that one of the things the church wants to do is to offer real tangible hope. But I think there's something more than just programmatic offers and ministries that we can provide as a church that provide hope in finances or hope for families and, and things like that. I, I love those things. I'm not saying anything bad about them, but I think there's something that we have to do before that because the church is not its programming. The church is its people. And what if we, as the church, were to begin living out tangible expressions of hope. What if we were the ones, what if we Christians were to say, I'm not going to wait for my church to develop a program that I can serve in that will offer hope. I'm going to offer that hope. What if we, as individuals, shifted from going to church to being the church? What difference would that make? Well, I think to do that, if we're going to make the shift as individuals, as individual believers from just going to church to start being the church, I think we need to get back to basics. And what do I mean by that? Well, the one is, that's been kind of the whole point of the series. But secondly, uh, think of what it means to get back to basics from the example of John Wooden. One of the greatest NCAA basketball coaches of all time. He said this at the beginning of every year with every new season of basketball for his players. The first thing I would show our players at our first meeting was how to take a little extra time putting on their shoes and socks properly. Now, I don't know what you think of college students, but I have the expectations that dressing themselves is already something that they can do at that age. But John Wooden went right back and said, let's start at the basics. The most important part of your equipment, he said, is your shoes and socks as a basketball player. You play on a hard floor, so you must have shoes that fit right. And you must not permit your socks to have wrinkles around the little toe where you generally get blisters or around the heels. It took just a few minutes, but I showed my players how I wanted them to put on their socks. 
hold up the sock, work it around the little toe area and the heel area so that there's no wrinkles, smooth it out good, and then hold the sock up while you put the shoe on. Pull it tight while you're putting your shoe on. And while you do that, the shoe must be spread apart, not just at the top laces. And you tighten it up snugly at each eyelet. And then you tie it. And then you double tie it so that it won't come undone. Because I don't want shoes coming untied during practice or during the game. I just don't want that to happen. I'm sure that once I started teaching that many years ago, it did cut down on blisters. It definitely helped. But that's just a little detail that coaches must take advantage of. Because it's the little details that make the big things come about. So how do we get back to basics of building a Jesus-first mindset in our world? Not the large-scale world, but the world where you live, the neighborhood where you live, the community in which you live. How do you do that? How do we get back to basics of representing Jesus in the world in which we live? How can we develop a Jesus-first mindset in our world today? Well, if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love to show you how you can do that. Turn with me in the book of Colossians as we wrap up our series. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can uh, open up your phone and check out the apps there and follow along. Or we're going to have the verses right on the screen for you. Because we see, as Paul concludes this letter to the uh, Colossian believers, that there's two things, two ways to develop a Jesus-first mindset in the world in which you live. First thing he says is this. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. We build, a develop a Jesus-first mindset in the world by living, first and foremost, for gospel opportunities. See what Paul does here? He says, please pray. And he prays, please open a door. But he doesn't pray, please open the door to my prison. Please open the door for my house arrest, which is how I normally pray. Lord, I'm in this sticky situation. Get me out of this. Lord, you know, if you can get me out of this, if you can change my situation, if you can change my circumstance, change that. No, he starts with something completely different. And I think he stole it from Jesus, who if you're going to steal something from, Jesus is probably a good place to start. Where Jesus would pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Paul said, I want to be a part of that, so pray that I get opportunities to share the gospel. The good news about Jesus. The good news being that even though you are sinners, even though you are alienated, even though you are enemies of God who has every right to judge you and condemn you to eternal death in hell, he loves you so much that his son came to die on the cross in your place to pay the punishment for that sin. 
and to purchase for you eternal life if you trust Him with your life, if you put your faith in Him that He died for your sins and God raised Him from the dead. He prayed for opportunities to share that good news, and He prayed for clarity. He prayed that people would understand what He was saying when He was saying it. He wanted to make the most of every opportunity. And he wanted the Colossian believers to make the most of every opportunity. He wanted the, them to, well, he wanted them to live like him, minus the jail sentence, I think, by living for gospel opportunities. Pray for them, look for them, take advantage of them, and don't compromise them with behavior that doesn't back up what you believe. Make sure you're walking the walk while you're talking the talk. And that's what you and I need to do. You and I need to live for gospel opportunities. If we're going to have a Jesus-first mindset in our world, it starts with looking for opportunities to share that, praying for opportunities to share that, and making sure our lives back up what we're sharing. When I was uh, growing up, I was... um, always interested in this. So how do you do that? How do you know a gospel opportunity? How do you have that mindset where you start to live like that? Because it's hard, right? We've got other things going on in our lives. We've got business pressures. We've got family pressures. How do we keep this gospel-centered mindset? And I remember one thing that helped me when I was growing up. I don't remember how old I was, but someone said, think of it like your business card or your calling card. Now, some of you don't have business cards, and some of you just have digital cards, but if you don't know what I'm talking about in that regard, think of it like the digital emails that you see on, on business emails that you send. It would, they always say a few things. One of them is your name, name of the company, the address of the company, a way to, for you to be contacted at the company, and your job title, Right? And what this person said, what this preacher said, or what the devotional said about what to do as a Christian with those business cards was to flip it like your job in life is to be a Christian. That's your job title. No matter what else it is that you're doing, your job in life, your job title in life is that you are a professional Christian. That's your job. Now, what that means is you would tweak what you do for a living. If you have teacher on your business card, then you would change that to say, in your mind, I'm uh, a teacher uh, becomes I'm a Christian who teaches. A Christian who teaches. If you are a janitor, that would become I am a Christian who does custodial work. If you're a baker, then you would say on your business card, I'm a Christian who bakes on the side. When you see the world through the task and job that Jesus has given you to make disciples, it changes how you think about the way that you do your daily routine. So take a moment and think about your job title. How would it change? What would it change to if you were to say, I'm a Christian who does the job that you have? Now, if you're retired, this gets a little tricky because you can't say, I'm a Christian who's retired. That, we get a little lost there. But, you, because that's really not a job, 
right? It's the end of professional work, but you're a Christian who uses their retirement, if that's helpful. But just for a second, if you've got something you can jot down, what your new job title would be if you thought of yourself as a professional Christian first before anything else. What is your new job title? Are you a Christian who's a, who's a mom? Are you a Christian who's a grandpa? Are you a Christian who drives Uber? Are you a Christian who serves as a CEO in a Fortune 500 company? What's your new job title? When that happens, when we start to think of, I'm a professional Christian, I think our passion for what we do changes. I think our passion for how we do it changes. It doesn't become a chore to think about, how do I live a Jesus-first mindset in the world? It's just who we are, right? It's what we do. It's like we're now uh, fans of a sports team. And I'm not saying that we should just be fans of Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But fans of a sports team never have to drum up motivation to talk about the team, to watch their team, to cheer for their team, to follow their team. I mean, this is a whole area uh, of Bills Mafia, right? This is where a whole bunch of people love to cheer and watch for the Bills. And it's great when they're good. But so many of you, so many had to endure some rough, difficult years of, of Bills Mafia. Where you had to watch Buffalo lose over and over and over and over again. And yet the passion for the team stayed the same. The passion for what was happening during the season, the passion for what was happening during the offseason, you couldn't get enough. That's what it's like to be a professional Christian, is that you can't get enough of the opportunities. So, we live Jesus-first lives. We develop a Jesus-first mindset when we set our minds to be professional Christians, that that's our job. And we live for gospel opportunities. We pray for them, we look for them, and we act to back up those opportunities when we get them. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have gifts of evangelism. This isn't about gifting. This isn't reserved for the pros and the amateurs. Everyone gets to play. Everyone gets to get into the pool. Everyone gets to get onto the field in some degree. Everyone gets to be a missionary in their mission field. A lot of churches in our denomination around the district um, and other churches even uh, outside of our denomination, some will have signs on the door uh, that as people leave, they will see a sign that says, uh, you are now entering the mission field. That's true. I also think that it's true that the mission field is inside the building, but I digress. I get what they're trying to say. But it's true for us. You and I are on mission for God. We are professionals that God wants to send out as missionaries into areas where only we, or only you, get to have gospel opportunities. So make the most of those things. We live Jesus' first lives when we set them to living for opportunities to share the truth about Jesus. But let's be honest. Those opportunities don't come 
Even Paul hints at that when he says, pray that they come and pray that I'm clear when they do come. But there's times when they don't. And when they don't, we can feel, are we even making a difference? When's our opportunity going to come? Or even worse, we have this feeling of, what happens if they do come? What do I say? What do I do? How do I, how do I, what, where do I, how do I, I don't know. And we become nervous. We're afraid we're going to fumble it. We're going to stumble over it. That we're, we're going to miss the microscope of the moment. So how do we overcome the insecurity and immensity of the moment? Consider everything that's hanging in the balance. Heaven and hell await what you say and their decision. That's a lot of pressure. How can we be sure that when that moment comes, it's an actual gospel opportunity? And how can we be ready when it does? I'll take a look at the rest of the book of Colossians 4, starting at verse 7. Because this is strange. Tychicus. If any of you are about to have kids, Tychicus is a wide open name. It's pretty rare. That'd be unique. Go ahead and put Tychicus on the names. I don't know if it's a boy or a girl. You could probably be either. So, you, you know, you can choose that. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And he is coming to you with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus will sends his, send you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Eleven, that shouldn't be there, sorry about that. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas sends greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see to it, or see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You know, for the longest time, even as a Bible college student, I'd read that and go, <laughs> no idea what's happening. Seems like it's just a standard closing letter. You know, it's like when you get together for... Uh, extended family gatherings, maybe Thanksgiving, a lot of people get together. You kind of ask about all the family connections, you know, how's Uncle Bonnie and how's Aunt Sue and how's the, you know, how's the triplets and how's the dogs and, you know, you just ask about all the connections and relationships and for the longest time I thought that 
he was just name dropping to make sure that he was, you know, just saying hi and greeting people and being nice and that the, the meat and the potatoes had already ended back when we talked about living a, a, a gospel-focused mindset about taking the most uh, opportunities for the gospel to share it, to look for those things, to pray for those things. I thought that was the end and this was just, you know, aftermath that didn't matter. But look at the people he lists and what he says about them. He says one theme with all of these names. And that theme is that he was encouraged and inspired by them in some way. Or that he wanted to encourage or inspire them in some way. In other words... We not only develop a Jesus-first mindset by making the most, by taking opportunities to share the gospel, right? We also develop a Jesus-first mindset in the world in which we live when we draw in inspiration from the example of others. Look at the people that he listed. Some people were big players in the kingdom of God, right? I mean, Dr. Luke... You know who he is. He only authored the Gospel of Luke so that the Christian church and especially the, the uh, uh, Gentile believers could know for certain what they had been taught about Jesus was true. And he used all of his medical skills to organize all of the data as much as possible. This wasn't witchcraft. This was a scientific study on whether Jesus was who he said he was. And he didn't just talk about who Jesus uh, was and what he wanted to accomplish. He then wrote a second book called the book of Acts, part two. So it's not just what Jesus did, but it's what the church did and what the church is doing. And then, of course, Epaphras was one that was named, another big player. We may not know him very well, but he was the one who started the church in Colossae and was now working at starting two other churches. So that's a big player. I find it hard and challenging some days to lead one church. Imagine planting three. That's actually what happens in a lot of uh, East Asian countries. In Vietnam, up in the mountains, a lot of pastors will not just pastor one church, but they'll pastor 10 or 20. And they'll go from village to village all day Sunday and preach the same message over and over again. Now, not all of them were big players in the kingdom of God. Some were smaller things. Some were smaller players. And they were about guys who were about to obey or hadn't obeyed and were repenting or were maybe struggling to obey. Because there was Onesimus, who was the subject of the book of Philemon, who was the slave that ran away from Philemon, who was coming back. And Philemon was instructed by Paul to welcome him as a brother. And there was um, Archippus who needed to get back to doing what God had called him to do. Imagine, for all of time, you're known for the guy who needs to get back to doing what God has called you to do because you weren't doing it. Paul was encouraged and inspired by their ministry. He wanted to inspire and encourage their ministry. Big or small or yet to begin or needed to restart or needed to get back on track, he wanted to encourage them. He was encouraged by them. And he knew that that same thing would inspire 
us. Who inspires you? When I was um, growing up, it was baseball players. It was uh, Gary Carter for the Expos. Um, left and went to the Mets and helped them win a World Series. And then later it was players from the Blue Jays, George Bell, Dave Steve. Um, those were great days. And then later in life, as I got into my teenage years, it was basketball players. Larry Bird, my ultimate favorite baseball or baseball basketball player of all time. Michael Jordan, who could argue against what he did um, and the accomplishments he's had. And one of my favorites, David Robinson. Now, you may not know who David Robinson was, but I think he redefined the role of center in the NBA. They called him the Admiral. And I love to wear his number 50 on my high school jersey when I played basketball back in the day. I had posters of them in my room. Now, I know adults don't have posters of their inspirations anymore. That's weird. Your wife wants to decorate in a different way. <laughs> um, and I applaud her for that. That's smart. But I think adults have people who inspire them. To me, nowadays, I'm not as inspired by individual efforts in sports. I'm inspired by individual efforts in ministry. And just like Paul, there are big players in my mind who have shaped hundreds of thousands of people, students all around the world, churches all around the world with their writing, mentors, friends, people I've gotten to meet. They're, they're some of my heroes of the faith, but there are lesser known heroes. Some of them are in this room. They're running sound, running live stream, playing keyboard, grabbing a mic, coming early to the service just to pray, to pray for the service. People who make sure our books are kept up to date. They're my heroes. Because we've got people here who take the time to lead groups faithfully every week, who don't just do the task that's assigned to them, but go the extra mile and make it even better. And I love that. I love working alongside people who don't just give a little bit of their time, the minimum of what they have to do, but they give the maximum and then some. Where they say, well, how could we make this better? What else could we do? What else could we try? And could we? And I, my answer is always, almost, yes. You don't even have to keep going because I trust you. You're one of my heroes. Who inspires you? Who inspires you in ministry? The big names, who are they? Who are the small names? The people local. Have you told them that they're an inspiration to you? Have you told others that they're an inspiration to you? That's encouraging. I think what's interesting is that Paul's also honest about people, and I think that means we're also honest about people. Not everyone's on that level. There are some people in our midst, in our church family, who are the archipuses. 
I don't think I'll ever say that again. I think I just made up an animal. Um, doesn't mean that we're not honest. There are some people who aren't moving forward in living that Jesus-first mindset. And of course, we want to encourage them to re-engage. We want to encourage them to get back into the game. We want to encourage them to give 100%, give all that they have. We, we want to do that. That's pastoral. But I think it's interesting that my tendency is that I focus on those who don't more than I focus on those who do. And I think about those who don't more than I think about those who do because they're the ones that create the friction. And I'd love that friction to go away. It's always on my mind. And I think that's true for society. I don't think that's just true for pastors. I think that's true in life. We can have a great successful meal that we've prepared and one thing isn't good and someone mentions that one thing that isn't good and that's all we think about is that one thing that wasn't good so i wonder i wonder if having a jesus first mindset is not to ignore those folks who need to re-engage and get back in the game but i wonder if it's to spend more time drawing inspiration from those who are running the race that God has put before them. That's why I love to go to conferences, people who are desperate to see God do something in their church, desperate to see something change in their church, change in their communities. I love going to Crosstalk Global and seeing students desperate to learn how to communicate the literary genres of the Bible and the authorial intent that God communicated it with in the first place, maybe focusing on those things gives us the inspiration and encouragement in the downtime when we're wondering, are we having an impact? Are we really getting opportunities to share the gospel? We can look around at those who are and say, hey, I can, I can use that idea. I can, I can do what they're doing. I can draw inspiration from that. And hey, I want you to know that what you're doing, how you're serving, that's an encouragement to me. It makes me want to keep going too. We develop a Jesus-first mindset in our world when we live for gospel opportunities. And we develop a Jesus-first mindset in the world by drawing inspiration from the examples of others. The other people around us who are also living Jesus' first lives. And it's interesting because that's how the world changes. God using His people, big and small, to offer the gospel of Jesus to others in word and deeds. And just like we said, it's like putting on socks. It's not as scary as you think. It's the little things. Let me close with this quote. I'm currently reading a book called uh, BLESS. It's an acronym. I'm not going to give away what the acronym is. Uh, but it's five everyday ways to love your neighbor and change the world. I've been very impressed with this author. I had a chance to um, join him on a Zoom call a while back. He shared about this book. I went, i got to grab this book. 
And not only did he send me the book, but he sent me a number of small group teaching DVD, like video resources just for free. He said, here, whatever you can do with them, go ahead and do that. Very helpful, very kind. Name is uh, Dave Ferguson. Uh, and this is what he writes. Surveys show that as believers, by the way, this is a fairly lengthy quote, so settle in. <laughs> Surveys show that as believers, we are really confused about sharing our faith. When practicing Christians were presented with the statement, quote, part of my faith means being a witness for Christ, end quote, 96% said that they strongly agreed or somewhat agreed, and this was a consistent response across all age groups. However, 28% also believed that, quote, it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. And that percentage jumped from 28% to 46% with practicing Christians in their 20s and 30s. So it's important to share your faith. 96% of believers said that across all demographics. And yet almost half, 28% to 46%, said it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different, with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. How does that make sense? It doesn't, but he goes on and says, maybe that's the point. The data demonstrates just how confused and frustrated believers are about sharing the good news of Jesus. The inner conversation on this topic for many might go something like this. My faith has made a huge difference for me, and I know it could help them. I know it could help others. Jesus tells us it's good news, and I should share it, but whenever I try to present the gospel, I feel like I'm selling a used car, or I'm part of a pyramid scheme. So maybe what I'm hearing from society, that evangelism is wrong, is actually right. Perhaps I shouldn't even try doing this. Well, according to Gallup, 87% of Americans say they believe in God. That's a significant number of people, right? More than one in four non-Christians would say they are curious about Christianity and what it could mean in their lives. And when you present this to young adults in their 20s and 30s, this same question, the percentage of those, the percentage of those who are curious about Jesus and faith jumps from 26% to 36%. That's not just good news. That's great news. And here's the kicker, 79% of unchurched people agree with the following statement, I don't mind talking to a friend about their faith if they really value it. So within friendship, the vast majority of people are willing to talk about spiritual things. So where do we go from here? What do we do with that data? Great question. In an eye-opening study, Barna Group asked your friends and neighbors what they value in a person with whom they would talk about spiritual matters. Here are the top three qualities in order. One, listen without judgment. The sad news is that two-thirds of the people surveyed said they had no one in their life who would listen to them without judgment. None. This reflects the sad truth that Christians are known more for talking than listening. 
to allow them to draw their own conclusions. Your friends and neighbors are not projects. They are people. They are looking for someone who will, quote, not force a conclusion, end quote, on them, but will trust them to have their own spiritual journey. And this is where both God and our friends want us to get out of the way. If the gospel is true and someone is sincerely searching for truth, we need to trust God to do His part and trust those around us to go on a journey just like we did. And three, confidence in sharing your own perspective. After you have listened to your friend, once you have given them space to come to their own conclusions, it's then and only then that the people around us are interested in are confidently sharing our own perspective. They want to know our stories and hear our experiences, but they also want to know that it is real, genuine, and that we're coming from a place of confident conviction. And I call this, or, or Dave calls this, paying the relational rent. Once you have invested enough in the relationship by listening to them, step one, and loving them no matter what they ultimately decide, step two, you will have a permanent place in their life. In their life, You will be able to speak with confidence about the difference the love of God and the life of Jesus has made for you. If I had to summarize what the research and my experience told me about what those around us are looking for, I can do it in one word. Friend. Friend. The research confirms it. What else would you call someone who listens without judgment, offers you wise counsel but helps you make your own decision, and loves you no matter what? That is a friend. It's that simple, and it's also that challenging. People are looking for you to be a friend. They are looking for a friend who will live the good news, be good news, and then share the good news in the form of their own story in that order. There is hope. And there's hope for the people that you love, for the people that you know, for the people who are in your sphere of influence, your circle of connections, if you are willing to be their friend for the purposes of what Jesus wants to accomplish. No one likes a red light. No one likes sitting in a red light. No one likes waiting for the light to change. But the book of Colossians tells us that because of who Jesus is and what He is doing, what He has done, He is giving us the green light. And all it takes is a Jesus-first mindset that will change our families, it will change our workplaces, it will change the world where we live. You've got the green light. So let's go. Let me pray for you.
Jesus, we, um, in this moment, ask for your Holy Spirit to be here. And we ask that you would help us. to develop a Jesus-first mindset in the world in which we live, to look for gospel opportunities, to pray for them, to be passionate about them, that you would help us to be inspired by those who are getting those opportunities, to recognize them, to encourage, to, to challenge, to motivate others who are wondering if God is ever going to use them or are struggling or maybe resisting having that Jesus-first mindset. Lord, I pray that you would ultimately help us to be friends to those who are lost, to listen to them, to welcome them regardless of what they decide to do, to love them no matter what, and then to share our story with confidence of what you have done in our lives and what you can do for them, and we leave the rest to you. But to do that as a friend, not treating people like a project. Lord, we especially think of inviting our friends and families and coworkers and loved ones to Easter so that they can hear that message. Lord, would you give us the confidence? Would you help us to see the green light when it's time to share and give us the confidence to do that because we built those friendships. We've backed up what we believe by the way we've treated them regardless of what they believe. And would you open doors for spiritual conversations that draw people into the kingdom of your son. There is nothing like what Jesus can do, and we want the world to know. We want our world to know. And so would you use us, Father, to do that? Would you help us to live and help us to develop a Jesus-first mindset in our world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.